radical encounter. Radical encounter. Radical encounter. <laughs> Welcome to Radical Encounter, a series of casual conversations about serious resistance. This show is hosted by me, Sofia Verino, a social researcher and activist living in Berlin. And by me, Patricia Silva, a visual artist and writer based in New York City. Pamela Sneed is an American poet, performance artist, actress, activist, and teacher. When I first read Pamela Sneed's Imagine Being More Afraid of Freedom Than Slavery, my mind was still reeling from the graphic imagery of police brutality in L.A. I read this book on my subway rides to and from work, dreaming of what better days could be like. Years later, Pamela published Calm, and by the time of our interview in 2016, America is again facing the consequences of its embedded racism. Swirling in the media imagery at the time of our interview in July was a story about a four-year-old who fell into a gorilla enclosure at the Cincinnati Zoo and whose parents were inevitably met with racist comments. Once again, the image of a black or brown body harks back to an othering shaped by the public dialogue of another era, that of the undomesticated animal. I spoke with Pamela about these two works, her trips to Western Africa in the 90s, and her relationship to pedagogy. I was very much changed by visiting Africa. So West Africa, 10 years ago, and that was um, in the summer of Katrina, right? Hurricane Katrina here. Um, and so the interesting thing is, is that I wasn't in the States, and I was watching Hurricane Katrina from a hotel room in, oh, in West Africa. So that was really interesting, and that was, I mean, that was like really profound, you know? When I got back... One of the first things that I saw was King Kong in the movie theaters, mm -hmm. Peter Jackson's version. Okay. You know, prior to being in West Africa and all that, I really interpreted the stories of slavery and African-American experience just strictly from the southern plantation. So I never had any view of Africa. I never had any idea, like globally, what it all looked like, you know what I'm saying? And sort of like West Africa, being there and being at the slave forts and all of that really opened up my vision. And so interestingly enough, like what I did was um, when I came back, I mean, I was appalled to see King Kong, you know, in the movie theaters. King Kong came out of like the deepest, most racist, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, like, the the way that America kind of tells its stories of, like, black people is through science fiction, right? And um, and then also they tell their stories through apes, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it's, like, really offensive, but we had three, you know, prior to 12 Years a Slave, it's not made by an American. Basically, we had three stories. So we had, we had Roots, we had Planet of the Apes, and we had mm -hmm. King Kong. And that's how we, like, learned. And people were like... Oh, you know, apes is about, you know, black people I never read. And it's like, are you kidding me? And they're like, or they didn't know that King Kong was black. And it's like, are you kidding me? You know, and so, and part of like, part of like what I was on to in Kong, I mean, I was so offended by that. The idea of, of Kong making this incredible journey, being separated from his birthplace, being put in chains in a theater, you know, I mean, all of this is a parallel to black people, right? An analogy to black people and, and like what happened to us in slavery 
And it's really kind of like barbaric, you know, how he's treated. But then, you know, I had this whole like post 9-11 read on it too, because so it wasn't just about race. The interesting part about it is, is that Peter Jackson's version, it was about race, but it was also about 9-11. And that Kong like sort of ends on top of the Empire State Building and he's being shot down by planes. And so he represents American vulnerability. There's this racist read that hasn't really evolved out of the time period that it came out of. And then there's also this like kind of post 9-11 thing where Kong, he comes back as an American freedom fighter. Right. So he's a warrior. He's a soldier. You know, he's in the jungle. He's like, so I mean, in a way, you know, he's this racist figure, but then he also represents the American people so that like he's being used as a warrior. You know what I mean? And it's him fighting the planes at the end. Right. So there's all this complicated, you know, stuff. And that's what like makes it interesting. It's not all just like, you know, like this racist, you know, fantasy. But, I mean, it's a no, lot I of that. I actually haven't seen that movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean... Remember, I'm sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do remember at around that time, now I'm thinking about the, this cover of Vanity Fair mm-hmm. that was with LeBron James mm-hmm. and Giselle Gain, you know, mm-hmm. and that cover, he was portrayed like he was calm and she was the sort of like life beauty, you know. So this like very gendered cover, and, and it, th- that cover was criticized on that ground and like on those terms. It was sort of criticized as why, at this day and age, in the cover of a mass market magazine, do we have this these representations? Of course, nobody talked about the gender issues. Um, it, people mostly talked about the racial issues, which mm-hmm. are valid. But mm-hmm. to me, when you look at imagery like that, it's hard to separate it out. Mm-hmm. Right, because you don't have Giselle looking all aggro. Mm-hmm. You have the black guy looking all aggro, right? Mm-hmm. So I just thought about that cover as you were describing that. Well, time well, Kong is like a huge reference for like black people. I mean, it's in also black imagery. So we're always, you know, Hollywood is always doing that, you know. Mm-hmm. So black men, like their faces are always mm-hmm. darkened, their nostrils are made big, and so they're always doing this thing around mm-hmm. ape or like or but even like Denzel in Training Day. You know, said, you know, I'm King Kong, I'm this, I'm that. So, like, I mean, it's acknowledged, you know. (laughs) There was a song, I think, in the 70s or 80s or something like that, and it was, uh, you know, Bad Bad Leroy Brown, you know, the baddest man in the whole damn town, uh, meaner than something, a junkyard dog, meaner than King Kong or something like that. So, it's sort of like, you know, Kong has been woven into um, the fabric of. Right. Right, and it's just kind of like accepted that that Mm -hmm. Kong is black. When I was in West Africa and at the slave courts, so I wanted to go back and like examine these stories about monkeys. I was really offended Mm -hmm. by Kong, and so it was kind of like protest literature, you know what I mean? Like I was really offended by seeing King Kong in the movie theaters, but I also wanted to tell this story about him being a son of the Middle Passage because, you know, there's this whole other side that... um, after 9-11, um, like, all Hollywood endings changed. Uh, it was, like, latter 49. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was of these firefighters, and Joaquin Phoenix is playing a firefighter. And, I mean, again, it's an analogy to 9-11, and he doesn't emerge from the flames, 
right? And so, so that this whole consciousness emerged, you know, like before, mm-hmm. prior to 9-11, you would rarely have a firefighter, a hero that doesn't come out. You know what I mean? America felt, you know, victimized, traumatized, you know, all of these things. And so it really came out in the movies. And so that, you know, some of the, some of the resurrection of, of Kong, I mean, it's interesting, mm-hmm. like using black people as slaves but then also using them as soldiers you know yeah yeah so i mean that was some of the stuff that i was doing and i did for my thesis project i did a piece called right to return and basically i was going after planet of the apes where there's been very 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 little scholarship right Mm -hmm. and i mean not read from the aspect of gender not read from the aspect of race Mm -hmm. and like rod serling himself who made the twilight zone said that planet of the apes was based on the civil rights struggle so it was him who admitted you know what I mean? You know, whereas people are like, what are you talking about? You know, and like Rod Serling, you know what I mean? Um, you know, who worked on Planet of the Apes said, yes, it was an analogy to civil rights yeah. and the civil rights struggle. So I was interested in stuff about origin, about race, you know, Darwinism, you know, all this stuff. It's all like really uh, quite unexplored. And then also, and so one of the things that I had was Caesar who was the talking ape in uh, Planet of the Apes, like I started, and that was before this new series came out, and in my thesis work, I had Caesar the talking ape, I placed him at Cape Coast Castle, and that he's like looking at what's happened to his people. Interestingly enough, that the new series opens uh, kind of like with Caesar's mother dying, and then Caesar... And so, and so immediately where my eyes went, you know, to like Caesar, do you know what I mean? It was like funny because the new series, you know, so, I mean, I always think like, I'm always thinking like in a forward, you know, way. Um, and no That's one really scary about you. <laughs> yeah, and no one ever gets it. And then it's like everything that I predicted, and like you know, now there's like and like one of the things that I said, you know, in South Africa, and I mean, you can kind of feel it post apartheid, is that like it's just blossoming. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. like queer movement, you know, race relations. I mean, it's deteriorating as well. And so that's kind of awful. But the seeds of like possibility, like you can feel it. And so, and I knew when I was there in 2011, I was like, you know, Africa is the frontier. Africa is the frontier. Like everything in the next, you know, 10, 20 years, it's all going to be Africa, right? And you can also see like when I was in West Africa, it was like underdeveloped or whatever. I can only imagine what it is like now, you know, Mm -hmm. 10 years later. I mean, people are developers all over that thing, you know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And then you see like all things African now, you know what I mean? And like there's, there's something that's happening here. Black Americans were exoticized in Europe for a long time, right? So so basically, it was all the Americans, and there was this infatuation. And now there's this infatuation with, like, Black Africans, like, Africans in America. So that, like, you know, you can... So it's Lupita, it's David, uh, I can't say his name. He did Selma, it's Steve McQueen. So it's, like, all these, like, Africans, and um, he's not, he's European. That happened also with Josephine Baker, Mm -hmm. right? The way that... And that's, like, one example that really comes to mind where the exoticism was sort of... I would call it brutal, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time... It's indicative of that same pattern of looking. 
Right. Right. It's indicative of like this entrenched pattern of looking that a lot of people don't want to let go of it. Right. Well, so, but the the reverse is happening here. So it's just sort of like you, now you say you're an African artist and they're like, oh my God, you know, or you have an African name and they're like, oh, it's brilliant. And like for so long, they wouldn't even consider Africa. Right. And now it's just kind of like all you, so they the, so that African artist, I mean, on one hand, it's, it's, it's imperative that we open up the globe and that their work is considered, mm-hmm. but it's sort of like this exotic kind of like others so that they're sort of like, like being privileged over African-American people. Do you know what I mean? It's all that. It's like, so in any place that doesn't, any continent or whatever, that doesn't have to deal with its history, right? So like, you know, so they want to like take somebody from like, I mean, you know, being in, when I was in Europe or whatever, you know, and people really loving black Americans mm-hmm. because they don't have to deal with colonization and all the things that they did to... Wait, who doesn't have to deal with Oh, Europe. I mean, they can exotify, you know, an African-American because they don't they don't see their ugly history in them. You know what I mean? White Europeans like look at Caribbean people or black people from Europe and they're scorned. Like they don't look at them as like, ooh, the exotic other. They look at them, you know, they're ashamed and they're trying to hide their history. You know what I mean? And so like you could be a black, you know, American. They're not associating all of that, all their crimes, you know, with Mm -hmm. them so that there's more privilege and more mobility. Mm -hmm. And I mean, again, we're talking about like broad, broad, broad generalizations, you know. I mean we're putting together like different histories and different things and we're doing like broad blanket kind of observations mm-hmm. you know what I mean yeah there's always exceptions yeah I would I would love it if you could get more specific about approaches to performance mm. that like the cultural heritage of performance in black communities because you mentioned, oh, the different approaches to performance, how, how they're different in black communities. And I was really curious about that. Well, I think that that we have, like, less access to the avant-garde, you know. So I think that we, like, a lot of times, and again, I mean, again, it's like, you know, it's broad stuff that, mm-hmm. and it's not absolute, but a lot of times, like, we... We're based in the oral tradition. We're based on a particular storytelling tradition. We're a lot more literal. We've had to like really deal with the issues of survival. Do you know what I mean? And so the issues of survival, I mean, mm-hmm. that really, you know, and we've had less access to like materials and like mm-hmm. stuff like that. And so the way, I mean, it's really interesting because I have a student like using like Bible quotes and stuff like that. He's a brilliant, brilliant artist. So on one hand was doing like some really experimental stuff and then started like sampling from, you know, really traditional kind of like black culture. Do you know what I mean? And and I had to say, you know, like, I know you mean as a professor, you know, it's always like my opinion or not. You know what I mean? You have an option. But I was like, you know, girl, you know, you've got to get rid of the Bible quotes. You know what I mean? And so, like, I wanted to kind of, like, prepare her for a language, for a wider language. Do you know what I mean? Like, I got where she was going, and I understand that background. You know what I mean? Because I came from the church as well. So that's still part of her information base, you know? But it was sort of like in me trying to prepare her for like the art world and prepare her for all the stuff. I was like, okay, get those big Bible quotes out of there. Do you know what I mean? And and so our language is different. Our experience is different. And so I think like sometimes 
it's just, it's different. I think there has to be a different value system. Understand why sometimes, I don't know, we're just working with different materials, different Mm -hmm. class systems, Mm -hmm. different like racial systems, different. I mean, I've had, I've dealt like with semesters, decades where students were really apolitical. And then in Mm -hmm. the last two or three years, like all of them, without my prompting, have gotten up and like talked about like these racial killings, right? And so it's like really leaving a scar on like a whole other population a whole other generation i mean they're all i mean they're like traumatized you know Mm -hmm. every of every color every you know what i'm saying like i had asian students last semester who were writing about about peter lang i think his name is you know and so he was and so they really felt that and i also taught at lincoln center and i had an asian student who did a really huge piece and and actually she ended up doing it for WNYC for radio and she did it at Green Space. But it was about Peter Lang and like they were traumatized, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like so they're oh, seeing like a scapegoat. Right. They're seeing an Asian, you know, scapegoat. Oh, we should clarify who that is for the posterity of the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. So Peter Liang or mm-hmm. Lang mm-hmm. was the officer that was accused in the murder of a kind of girly? Yeah. He refused to use a police force lawyer Mm. he actually had his own Mm. and even having his own and i think he wanted to have a better lawyer right i think he didn't some to me that implies a lack of trust Mm -hmm. right that is already a symptom of a lack of trust if you are not going to use the lawyer that everybody else on your police force is using who say they behind you right so that is already a sign of something so, I mean, I've had Asian students who are speaking out about police violence. I've had, like, white students. I have, like, you know, Muslim student. I mean, I have everybody. And so, in that, in, like, without prompting. So, we're looking at a very scarred generation. And, and why, okay, so, I keep asking myself this, too. Why do you think that we are living in a moment where so much of this internalized social tension is just busting out well do you, do you feel that oh yeah i mean i um how do you say his name tanaheshe i mean his you know contention is that all this police violence is nothing new you know that that basically it's always been around and the only thing that we have now is like more technology it's been recorded and you know and i was like looking at some footage from like some civil rights stuff or whatever and it wasn't until the cameras like kind of like went in was our movement kind of like documented the things that we were facing. So in a way, technology, I mean, people of color have been left out a lot of the technology game. But then on the other hand, technology is helping us, has helped our struggles in, in particular ways. So I, sometimes I get like really happy. I'm like, oh, wow, we've been alienated from technology, but technology has been our friend because it's put like our struggles like on the map. But the interesting thing is, is that I really disagree with people who say that this has always been going on because I do believe that. I mean, we're living in a in a very, very violent, I mean, you know, it's a violent country. It's always been a violent country, you know. But I do think that that America is kind of like imploding. And I do feel that part of like what's interesting about like South Africa, even though this is like really disappearing now, but 
for the decades after apartheid, basically there's a language like everybody talks about it. So everybody talks about apartheid, right? So you have white people, black people, like people are hyper aware. I mean, you now have a generation called the born freeze and like they don't want to really deal with it, you know? Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is, is like when there's a language for it, like when you can acknowledge it, you can change it, right? And here, like, they've, like, kind of wiped away the language for it. So the bottom line is, is that, I mean, so there's this this uh, universal, like, kind of denial. Actually, the book that I had for you, like, the first piece. The chapbook? Yeah, the chapbook talks about Lincoln. It talks about how when I left South Africa, I said America got away with lots, you know, a whole lot. You know, so, I mean, always we're taught to, like, go over there mm-hmm. and, like, look at what those people are doing. And it's like, okay, you know, like, the decades of, like, segregation in this country, the brutal, 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 violent struggles, mm-hmm. you know, of human, uh, of civil rights. So we've had a brutal apartheid here, right? And so, but the thing is, is that we don't have the language for it, right? Mm-hmm. So everybody's in denial. So our country has denied so much that I really feel like everybody's imploding, right? I mean, so you have prevalent depression, like, you know, and still they're saying, oh, you know, everything's so nice, everything's so nice, and oh, everybody's so happy, and like, there's no health care, there are no jobs, you know, like, everybody's, like, suffering. We're all sort of distracted, right? There's a lot of institutionalized distraction, as I call it, you know. We're all sort of, like, trained to be distracted by all of these things that are really happening around this, you know? Well, distracted and in denial. So yeah. it's just kind of like, so, I mean, like I think about like Hannah Arendt and uh, what is it, the bureaucratization of homicide. And like, and so she's talking about like really the camps and how they like changed the language of it oh, yeah. so that you could never really, um, everybody had, everybody had a role. So you never saw the whole picture. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and I feel like that's similar to here. Our culture is imploding. I mean, I think it's happening with the pop stars. So basically, I mean, I think we're in a culture of denial. You know, so even more than the distraction, like, you know, everybody, they're still like, you know, have a nice day and the emoticons and they're all smiling. But meanwhile, it's violent. If you don't have health care, you know, if you don't have Social Security, you don't have all these things for people, whatever. And you have like a really aggressive bureaucratic system. No one talks to a human and you're just thrown into the system and there's tons and tons and tons of, of like red tape and all this other stuff. So the bottom line is, is that without the language, again, like we're completely imploding. You know, you've got these white kids that like, you know, go in and like they're depressed and they've got 200 rounds of ammunition and they're going off. You know what I mean? So the whole culture is like, I mean, something's wrong across the board. You know what I mean? And we've been taught to deny it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so so therefore you have like, I mean, you know, like half the population is on antidepressants mm-hmm. and it's like, which I don't think are a bad thing. But, you know, I mean, I don't think the drugs are bad. But the fact but, that we need it, 
Right. And so that there's something like, and I mean, that's the other thing that rather than like looking at social systems, rather than looking at how we can change things, rather than making a quality of life, you know, for people, what we're saying is like, even if you go to the doctor and you say, well, this is wrong. They're like, oh, you want this? Do you want that? Yeah. Do you want yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, well, no, I want treat- a treatment for my medical condition. Right. No, I want social justice. Right. I want to be sold something. Right, 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 right. You know, so, but the, the whole thing is, is that it's not to like cure anything. Mm-hmm. It doesn't change anything or whatever. It's just sort of like giving you medication to help you tolerate it. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's the whole thing is like, so we don't have a system that like wants to change anything, wants to address anything, wants to make things better, doesn't mm-hmm. have a place where people can like talk and have things that they need addressed. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of like, I will give you this medication so you don't go crazy, mm-hmm. you know, and go right. off, you know, for all these things that yeah. are going on, you know, and yeah. it's not just, it's not just personal, it's political. For sure. It's completely structural. Right. Individuals are bearing the burden. Well, I like how you said without the language... Without having a language, being denied having a language, I want to talk about something that I thought about after another book that you wrote. Imagine being more afraid of freedom than of slavery, which I thought was, and again, I didn't bring it with me. I don't even think I have it anymore, so please mm-hmm. forgive me if I'm like quoting. No, no, no. And you're like, oh, wait, I didn't write that. Mm-hmm. But when I read that book, I thought more about how this need to reinvent oneself mm-hmm. to survive, mm-hmm. need to reinvent oneself after a historical trauma like slavery, like mm-hmm. chattel, that kind of process. Mm-hmm. And I think about it as a process of dehumanization. Mm-hmm. I think about it as um, and, and like a traumatic collision of capital. Because mm-hmm. like to me, it's about dehumanizing people to the point where they are traded, mm-hmm. where they are like mm-hmm. negotiated like commodities, right? So I read that book and I've been thinking like, that's why reinvention and survival are linked. Mm-hmm. I don't know when you wrote that. It was a long time ago. Yeah, but um, 98. Now when you're talking about, oh, without a language and the need, the prominence that language has in order to get over things and to sort of being kind of um, a springboard to mm-hmm. eliminate things that we don't want, mm-hmm. um, it also makes me think about the need to reinvent and the need that we have to sort of like, oh, okay, so we've had this historical trauma we can acknowledge that, but we also need to do work because we were we were somebody before that happened. We were a culture. We, we were going somewhere as, as a people, as a group, as women, as all the constellations of being that we have that we carry with us. Like We were working on all those things before this historical trauma was imposed on us. Well, the, there's, a, there's a quote um, by Monique Wittig. Um, oh, I'm sorry. So you didn't <laughs> at the at the at the beginning of Imagine that says, "Remember that time when you were not a slave. Try to remember. Um, failing that, invent." Okay. Right, and so that opens Imagine, right? Okay. So it okay. is, right? This yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so that, that is that comes the... across in your writing, though, because I remember that comes across in other things that you mm. have in that series, mm. especially something about nine eleven. Hmm. Or no? Oh no! No, not an imagine. No, not an imagine. Yeah, maybe that was in Kong for so long. Like I was also like really defined by other people, and I mean I'm actually like really ashamed to say like my age and like what I've struggled with in terms of like really being defined by others, you know, like and and maybe because my worldview was so small, or I wanted to belong, or you know whatever. 
people or maybe because I didn't know who I was, you know, I mean, I didn't, you have to come from a background that teaches that, right? You have to be in a world that kind of teaches that. So if everything, you know, teaches you to deny who you are as queer, as a woman, mm-hmm. as a person of color, as a working class person, mm-hmm. anything, right? So how are you going to find yourself, right? So I think for a long, and also, you know, I think there's like some mental illness in my family, you know, so I, so there were a lot of things that would keep me from finding out who I am, you know, Mm -hmm. truly. And also I'm an adopted child, right? And so that's like in the story Isla, right? So a lot of things like wiped out my identity, right? The real capacity and then society kind of fears me, right? Because I'm a big black woman, right? And so therefore they really don't want you to come into power. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's literally taken me this long as an adult to figure out who I am outside of other people's definitions mm-hmm. and to have the feel that I have the right to do that. And I literally have had to let go of so much, mm-hmm. like so many people, like so many ideas of community, so many, you know. Um, and maybe visual art, like, you know, mm-hmm. starting to do visual art after doing poetry and performance. Um, I mean, it's all in, interconnected, but mm-hmm. maybe that's part of, like, my new path. Like, maybe that's part of the freedom of self-definition. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm, yeah. like, literally constructing and reconstructing. But that's kind of like... But it is a shift of identity, right? Uh-huh. And it is... or maybe. or maybe it's a shift. Well, even just in terms of, I never thought that I would be making visual things. Like, I always, you know, I've always had, you know, friends. My my biggest influences were visual artists. Mm -hmm. Like, all over my house, like, that was always the thing that I liked to do is collect. Mm -hmm. Right? So, if you came to my house, it was always, like, really visual. And so, and I never imagined that, you know, like, three years ago, like, I would start to, like, make things myself. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I would have this feeling in my, my hands that I had to do something. Right? And so, yeah. And so, mm-hmm. so part of that for me, um, I mean, I'll always do all of those things, but I'm saying that I think maybe that represents the shift in my identity or maybe mm-hmm. that represents more of a self-ownership or of a self-definition or me going on my own path. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, I think that your writing... The content, the stuff that moves in your writing, as an outsider looking at your stuff, right? Mm-hmm. The the movement, the things that move in your writing are so are so similar and in total complement mm-hmm. with the things that move in the collages because they're both mm-hmm. so I don't want to say reactions because that can be non contextual, but you have these things that are very critical of politics and the intersection of the greater political body and the individual body right. that's present in your writing. It's right. all over everything you write. And right. then it's, it's in some of your collages that I've seen where you have right. photographs of people of color and in some cases the colonized body, right? Mm-hmm. Colonized bodies and some of the ones that I'm thinking of now. So, and then you also have flowers and you, you have this other <laughs> right. array of glitter. Right, like, right. I've seen, that's a new thing that yeah. I've seen yeah, recently, yeah. the glitter. No, no, no. I, I saw it, like, actually it was my mother who's, like, been watching Project Runway or something like that. And, like, and I, it was last year. I reposted a picture that I used glitter in, which they were not too much, right? But it was really beautiful. And my mother goes, you know, because she's, for some reason, she's really supportive of me making visual things, that's right? Great. So she's really bonded 
associated with me. And um, and I was like, oh, you know, I wanted some glitter. And she goes, leave that glitter alone. You know, so I was like, oh, okay. And then I saw like a really like hoity-toity visual artist and they use glitter. And I was like, okay. Which hoity-toity visual artist? Oh, uh, I don't know. But I saw a piece made out of gold glitter and I really liked it. So then I was like, okay, I'm not so wrong in the <laughs> glitter. But, but um, I love it. But yeah, I like, I like optical sensation, and that's to mm. me like glitter is that, and it's kind of fantastic. So this whole, so here's what I wrote. I'm gonna read you what I wrote, and okay. I was really embarrassed about writing this because I'm like, Pamela's gonna think I'm like totally out to lunch on this one. But what you just described was something I wanted to ask you about. What moment in your life or moments have really made you see yourself with clarity? Mm. Because this whole story you just said about. Um, how you've had to recalibrate yourself, and there's been a lot of change. Uh, maybe you're shifting your identity. That comes across in your work so much. Or maybe it's something I I wanted to ask about the infinite puzzle that is that is the growing or the becoming into oneself when we are on a self-made constellation. We are definitely taught that to grow up means we go through all these same rituals and all these same habits. By the age of three, we have this. By the age of five, we have that. We have, there's like this track that is a dominant narrative, but that is not the felt experience of a majority of people, right? So I think that those of us that have to do what you are doing and people who are doing just that kind of crafting the shape of our minds, craft, crafting the shape of our bodies, the shape of our looks, um, and the shape of our priorities, right? All of these things. I always look at that as this puzzle that's always kind of... Uh, sometimes it's visible, sometimes it's not. Sometimes the parts appear, sometimes they don't. But at the end of the day, it's like, I'm the only one who can put it together. This, which you just described to me, made me think about this question about that infinite puzzle that we all carry. So uh-huh. it's really, it's interesting that it would be this point in my life because I can teach voice to a, like anybody. Like I can like hmm. help anybody break any kind of chain anywhere. But I couldn't do that for myself. Do you know what I mean? So I feel like I'm like the late bloomer. So finally, all the things that I teach are happening for me. Do you know what I mean? But it's been a long... And I also think I have like more support. You know, like I have a great art therapist. Like I have people who are like sort of in my corner and like... Either I was really ahead and really behind, right? So in ways, I'm like, I'm an accelerated learner. I'm an accelerated leader. And then in certain ways, I'm like so stunted, right? (laughs) And so in that regard, like, I feel like, I mean, I had like a, um, a literary agent years ago and she would say, you know, are they ready for you yet? Or they're not ready for you yet. And that was like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And when Imagine came out and she's like, oh, you know, they're mm-hmm. not ready for you mm-hmm. yet. And like somebody else said, oh, it's going to take a while. It's going to take a long time for people to be ready for you. In your imagination, like what is the, like what at this point in time, I'm an artist too. So like, how do we define our role as artists in society. Well, it's interesting because I was telling you that I feel like teaching is like my spiritual work. I feel like, and that's why I put so much into it, and that's why I feel like my students always come back to me and say that they were transformed, you know? Mm -hmm. So I've always been in service. I've always seen myself as a servant, you know what I mean? I've always seen myself as somebody who had to lead, you know? So writing, so performance, so visual art... 
And I mean, I'm saying all of that to say that, well, you know, I haven't been that far from home because of the fact that, like, I really believe that that's what art does. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. So so I believe, like, being an artist is a spiritual practice, you know, sure. and, that, and that the bottom line is, is that the society has to look to its artists, you know what I mean, as its leaders, as, mm-hmm. as the people who are going to save us. I think we're we're the soldiers that we are the the you know that we're the seers that we're the healers you know that that those are the things the that transformers yeah right um, so they believe you know this generation that you know music comes from an iPod mm-hmm. you know what I mean or it comes from you know iTunes or something like mm-hmm. that that it doesn't come from an artist it doesn't come from you know it doesn't come from hard work it doesn't come from you know or any of that and so they're willing to pay you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars for anything that like Mac says that it's going to put out mm-hmm. but they don't want to pay a dollar to a musician right and so that we've been completely like reconditioned or even like you know, like my work, like with a writer, you know, like people, for some reason, I mean, there are a couple of writers that they know, you know, takes work. But other than that, they're like, oh, I wrote a poem when mm-hmm. I was in fourth grade. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, it's not quite that kind of party. You know, I mean, if in fact, you know, I mean, if you want, I mean, I wouldn't discourage <laughs> anyone from writing, you know what I mean? I think it's a great thing. But the bottom line is, is that it is a science. It is a work, you know what I mean? And that it's a process. Right. And that it has to be regarded and treated in a particular way. So, I mean, I'm talking about artists are underserved in terms of like healthcare and stuff like that, because it's like, you know, if healthcare comes with a job, well, then we have this job, but then it's not considered to be one. Right. right. And so in that regard to so all these services that we don't get. And so what happens when you're an artist and you don't have healthcare and you have a health issue? Right. Mm-hmm. And so like yeah. so then we're dying of cancer, you know, you've got like the dancer who's got one leg, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. And like all kinds of things. The role of the artist is not taken seriously as uh, a person or people that have ideas to transform things, right? We th- when we think about our social transformers, we think about policymakers, the politicians, the policymakers, these are the people that have the transformative power, right? And then there's the other side of the church that is the personal transformer. I'm not against that. As you've said, artists also do that work, as do social workers, as do teachers, as do even a really good exercise high school gym coach, right? That's also a form of how to give people a platform to connect to themselves and then let that be what it is, or to instill that sort of self-trust in people. Right. As artists, we are not seen as having that power, even though we do, and we have it, and anytime people undercut the power of art, I always think, do I ring up Nazi Germany campaigning right now? No. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. the only way that this, um, for fun we'll call him a degenerate, right? Um, that Adolf Hitler was able to come from this disunified land, that wasn't even Germany, you know, in the 1800s, to unify everything was through visual language, was through branding, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. that that was a look at what look at the power that that did. People were brainwashed mm-hmm. like that. People died. Lot like lots like awful things happened because mm-hmm. of this visual power. I kind of went on a rant there, but um, it was good. <laughs> I think it's sort of like mm-hmm. we are taught we don't have this power, yet we face every day 
what that power does, mm-hmm. right? When, when it's not used under artist terms. Right, and when artists know. are disregarded or when art is disregarded and, you know, or like being a mm-hmm. teacher and like, I mean, the way to reach people, do you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. through art, you know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. through all that, you know, music, visual language, all that mm-hmm. is how you reach them. Mm-hmm. And all that is how, you know, you begin to have a conversation. All that is how we do this anti-brainwashing mm-hmm. stuff, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. And um, so... Yeah, I mean, I've put all the, and I see sometimes, you know, like I, I saw um, like a, some meme on Facebook the other day that said, you know, by the way, you know, art is my real job, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And yeah. so it's like, there hasn't been a book, like really of like social criticism by a woman of color, lesbian, um, since Audre Lorde. Oh, I mean, you know, yeah. like we've had, you know, bell hooks or whatever. And I mean, not, I mean, maybe there has, like, maybe Jill Dolan or something like that. Maybe there are a few people. But for the most part, we but don't have, like, any big social, like, criticism. I'd love to do that. Like, the the essay, the public yeah, yeah. essay, you know, all that stuff. As Sophia learned from speaking with Cheryl... Mm. Um, there hasn't been a feature film that there's only been one other feature film that's been made by a black lesbian since Watermelon Woman. Right. Right. The only one since. Right. And so, and we're suffering from that in literature. We're suffering from that, you know, mm-hmm. whereas everybody thinks that they're so empowered and there's so many opportunities, and it's like mm-hmm. no one even notices that there's an absence. Right, there's a, yeah. yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? I, it's remarkable that we have this mainstream dialogue um, that, to me, it didn't come out of nowhere, mm-hmm. but the fact that it's mainstreaming like this is, is surprising to me. The dialogue mm-hmm. that we're having about race, that we're having about how black boys are treated on the street, and I don't think it's just black boys because I have friends who live in Brooklyn and they post on their Facebook page. Me and my girlfriend got beat up last night. Here's the picture of uh, pictures of us with bruises. You know that it doesn't just happen to black boys; it happens to gender nonconforming bodies hmm. and trans women. Like it just that violence is there. But the level of dialogue that we are having about this has snowballed and snowballed. And I was really happy that you came to the show that Nona and I were in, mm-hmm. and I was happy to introduce you to each other precisely because a lot of the work that she's doing by situating herself. Uh, and her body in slavery sites within New York City made me think about your own trips to, um, I guess, West Africa was Mm -hmm. first, Mm -hmm. um, in Ghana, and how you've been uh, treading on this ground for quite some time. So Mm -hmm. is there something in the national dialogue that surprises you um, or that kind of catches you off guard sometimes, or...? Well, that's what I was getting ready to say. So, okay, so I'm saying, like, my criticisms of President Obama. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that, one, at the beginning of his presidency, like, one month into office, like, first he walked in with a book of poetry, right? And, and like, under his arm on, like, Inauguration Day or something like that, he was carrying a book of poems by Derek Walcott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I actually think Obama is, like, a poet. I think he's a great poet I think he's an actor I think he's a musician I think he's a comedian you know I think he's an intellectual do you know what I mean um so I think that that makes him interesting but I do think he's like kind of middle of a road I think he like has scammed us a lot and like because of the fact that we you know 
we're all like the the illusions and the smoke machine and all that stuff and we're like oh he's so great so it's like mm. the hunger games you know all the time right but um but at the beginning of his presidency like one month in he flew to cape coast castle um in ghana and um, and he stood like, and I know it was a nod to Kwame Nkrumah, mm-hmm. and so I think that probably he was very influenced by Nkrumah and uh, Nkrumah as an intellectual and all that stuff. But I was like, oh my God, the significance of like this black president flying to like Cape Coast Castle and to acknowledge the slaves is unbelievable. What a moment. Is unbelievable, is and that I don't a think encounter? right. I don't think anyone like really caught. I mean, I wrote a poem about it. I was just like, "Oh my God, Cape Coast!" They made it really commercial, and they made it palatable because I mean, a lot of Ghana's economy is based on the slave trade. I mean, not the slave trade, the tourist trade, and so they like cleaned up Cape Coast Castle, and so like they're selling this whole like slavery mm-hmm. thing. It's like you know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it could be a good thing, it could be a bad thing. But the bottom line is, is that there are places like, at least when I was there 10 years ago, there's like a whole other side of Cape Coast that like it smells, it's like it's a garbage dump. And so the bottom line is, is that like all I can think is like Obama wouldn't stood in that, that trash heap and like that smelly trash heap mm-hmm. and like and basically acknowledge the slaves. You know what I'm saying? You know, and some people were like, they were like, I didn't remember it smelling. But there's a whole other side, because I had like a partner who was West African for a while. I remember there was a whole section of Cape Coast that was like, that the tourists don't see. And I mean, it stinks. And I'm like, and I can't, I mean, that's unbelievable to me. So the fact that he did that and like to enter that, Mm -hmm. like to enter you know, slavery into the conversation mm-hmm. or to acknowledge Africa, African-Americans. Mm-hmm. But I mean, again, there's this whole discrepancy because all of Africa is not about, it's not about slavery and all of that. So it's one aspect, you know what I mean? Some people don't like the fact that African-Americans claim, you know, that space or want to yeah, talk yeah. about Africa as that or talk about that part of Africa because I don't want to be broad. There's mm-hmm. so many Africas, mm-hmm. right? right, right of course. But I thought that that was like really, that was profound to me. Yeah. I want to know if there's ever been a moment or a situation in which you saw yourself with, or your work, um, or a work, with this amazing amount of clarity. Has that ever happened? Because you seem to have a lot of those moments, I think. I do, all the I, time. Like, that comes across in your writing and mm. in your observations. Like hearing Gift for me, mm. when I went to the Bowery Project and I heard you read that. Mm. and But it seems like that's sort of embedded in how you write and how you make things. But are, is there like a moment that you had where you, you were confronted with an idea or a circumstance that really brought a lot of clarity and that felt really radical at some point in your life? Kong was based on my visits to the slave forts, and I think that experience was transformative. I mean, 10 years, and I've never stopped talking about it. I've never stopped mentioning them, you know. What was done to black people in this country has never really been addressed, really been acknowledged, anything. And so, I mean, spiritually, as an artist, everything was really affecting for me. 
but I feel like that was that was a big journey for mm-hmm. me, and that was like like a really eye opening one. Mm-hmm. Um, and also because I am adopted, like I feel like, but I've never really been interested in like a birth parent kind of thing. Like people are like, oh, why don't you find your family? But I'm really interested in like African American history and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So that was, like, really, like, you know, Ghana, and I mean, I'm sure I'm probably not from there or anything like that, but somehow that was really important for me. Like, that was really satisfying mm. to know where I am, like, mm. to know more, like, historically or something. Like, that was a bigger journey or bigger lens for me mm-hmm. to know who I am, right? That's pretty incredible. What was going on at that time that you went to Ghana? Or what wasn't going on that prompted you to really make this trip? Because I don't think it was so celebrated at that time to make this move. To make this move that you did, or maybe it was. Um, well, I didn't make a move. I mean, I just went. Like yeah. literally, I was going on vacation or something. So I thought, <laughs> you know. So I thought, but I'd also been like, I mean, I'd had some health issues and stuff, and I had like the a long series of struggles, you know. And so then I was like, what's something that you really want to do? And then it was like, oh, go to Africa, you know what I mean? Okay. And so, and then it ended up being this life-altering kind of like spiritual journey. So it was just sort of like, I mean, there was definitely like a search that, you know, was underneath it. or sort of a need to kind of like repurpose, realign, you know, mm-hmm. know who I am, get some understanding. I mean, and I say at the the beginning of my thesis project, I I flew, you know, such and such and such amount of miles for a consultation because I needed to talk to my ancestors face to face. So, you know, it's like, okay, so I wanted to like, you know, I wanted to have a little dialogue, you know what I mean? I think that that was like a real big turning point for me. I mean, a very affecting journey and it was very, it changed my work, it changed my life. And I wrote this whole piece because I'm also finishing a short story collection. And is, I wrote is a Isla part of it. Isla, yeah, Isla. yeah, yeah. Isla's part of it, okay. and uh, and basically the title piece at the beginning of it, I talk about like being in college and meeting June Jordan and um, Toni Morrison in a cafe. And I mean, I was a kid and I was obsessed with Toni Morrison. And basically, and I was like really kind of shady to June Jordan, right? I was like, I don't know. I mean, I was just really young and I was just like... I love her. I I was like, I was kind of shady to her, you know? And like, she's like, she had these big glasses on and and I spotted them from so far away, right? I just like, I knew. I was like, that's June Jordan and that's Toni Morrison. And so I, I ran up to them. I wish I could have told June Jordan, like, what she meant to me, you know, now, you know, and, like, she was the first person that I ever heard say, you know, this country needs a revolution, and she was a poet, and, I mean, she was saying stuff like that 20 years ago, you mm-hmm. know, she was like, mm-hmm. we need a revolution, you know what I mean, yeah. and here was a poet, like, who stood up, and, you know, and she didn't apologize, she yeah. was saying this in an academic, yeah. you know, situation. And as a queer woman, yeah. she was out as bi, right. at a time when it was so not... I mean, it's still not right. Like, great to say that out loud, but right. like, she was really out about it. Like the fact that she said, I mean, like this country needs a revolution, and the fact that I keep saying that because I feel like, like I have to kind of pick up that torch and have to like let people know. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That like was a really it was a big defining moment for me when the poet stands up and like says, you know. You know, and you're like a kid, and you're like looking. Mm-hmm. She's like, we need a revolution. We need a revolution. 
So that was like one of the first things that I heard that really defined me. In 92, Audre Lorde had the I Am Your Sister conference. And uh, she walked out on stage and she's like wearing this big dashiki and, you know, in the whole story about her being like one breasted, you know, warrior. And um, and so basically she came out on stage and she said, you know, I began this journey as a coward. And, um, and it was really, really powerful. And I think I was like really too young to like understand all of it. I mean, I knew that it was really powerful. Those are some seminal moments in my life, okay? So to hear June Jordan say, mm-hmm. you know, we need a revolution. To see, you know, Audre Lorde, you know, open up like the wings of her dashiki and, you know, say I began this journey as a coward. One of the first performances I ever saw was Denitra Vance. You know, years ago, she was a muse of George Wolfe at the Public Theater, and uh, she had a mastectomy scar. And, I mean, I had never seen anything like that. Here she was a, a black lesbian, as far as I know. She was the first black woman to ever star on Saturday Night Live. And I saw her at the Public, mm-hmm. and, like, she literally was dancing on a black box with a, a mastectomy scar. And, like, she had taken off her clothes and she was mm-hmm. dancing naked. And part of, like, and, I mean, if we talk about, like, Kong as a performance, I was, like, sort of referencing Denitra Vance mm-hmm. and referencing Robbie McCauley, Sally's Rape, because she also uses the auction block, right? Um, okay. So those are, and she said, you know, she stripped naked. She had, like, a white sheet. And she said, you know, I think she was her, she was referencing her grandmother Sally's Rape on the plantation and she said I didn't want anybody doing it to me down on the ground so I mean like so I had I saw Robbie McCauley doing Sally's rape mm-hmm. I saw Denitra Vance like you know dark-skinned black woman you know doing uh dancing like you know at the public theater with a mm-hmm. mastectomy scar when no one showed that Right. I, you know, I heard June Jordan. I saw Audre Lorde. So, I mean, I mean, we can like, you know, I saw Asado Saint, you know, like I knew all those black gay poets who died and like, and I, you know, I saw him stand up at Donald Wood's funeral and, and take over the pulpit and say, Mm -hmm. you know, Donald Woods did not die of heart failure. He Mm -hmm. died of AIDS. If you agree with me, stand up. And like, those are like some of the greatest moments of performance that I've ever seen. So, you know what I mean? So like, this is how I was kind of like reared. So even when people talk to me about like performance traditions or, you know, all that stuff, I mean, I'm referencing all of that, you know, I mean, I was fortunate to kind of come, I mean, these were the great, you know, moments, so it's less of like, you know, the Lee Strasberg, you know, acting school, but like how I, yeah, it's like, I mean, these are, I saw people do incredibly like radical things and so I keep trying to like recycle the names recircle Mm -hmm. you know like I keep trying to like bring everybody back and bring everybody in and recreate these moments so that so all of those moments were like really incredible you know moments for me and really formative and then I keep trying to offer them to people as as a history you know Thank you for listening. We hope that you'll join us next week. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Rad Encounter. That's R-A-D Encounter. Radical Encounter is a digital humanities project by The Open. Our theme song was composed by DJ Tika Masala.